Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, we are in the book of Revelation. It's great to be back with everybody, too. What a, what a fun week last week, doing the baptism service, and it was just awesome. It was really, really cool. If you, if you missed it, I think we've got 8,000 pictures, so feel free to reach out to one of us, and we'll see if we can get that for you. But we are, we're unpacking chapter 13 today, and chapter 13, we're actually going to break it up into two sessions because it is so rich and deep in the Word of God. And since we do have quite a few new people joining us every week, I want to go through these three or four introduction slides, just a high-level overview to give you an idea of where we are in the book of Revelation, what's going on, and maybe what you've missed to date just from a high-level perspective so you could you can go back and catch up actually on the messages online if you're interested in that and we can make sure we get the link out there to everybody but revelation the word revelation actually is apocalypsis in the greek and it literally means the unveiling of and so the whole book is the unveiling of Jesus Christ who is Jesus for all eternity who is he and when you understand who he is as ruling, conquering king, you have a new perspective of the Jesus that we serve. He is, he is no longer the suffering servant coming to wash our feet and die for us. He is the ruling king, and that's literally what the word revelation means, the unveiling of who is he. So we're continuing to study. It's honestly the most incredible book of the Bible. In 404 verses, it's got over 800 allusions to the Old Testament, which is why it's so foreign to so many people's ears, because they do not study the Old Testament today. The church does not open up the Old Testament for the most part. And so because of that, it makes the book of Revelation very confusing. And the challenge is everything in the book of Revelation is answered somewhere in the Old Testament. You just have to know where to go find it. And that's... that's the joy and the treasure of studying this book is that when you study it rightly and, and knitly fit together the entire counsel of God's word, it will take you into every other book of the Bible. And the whole book is about redemption. The whole book is about authority. Who has the authority? It's Jesus. And you're going to see a common pattern even here in chapter 13 today as we start to unpack it, that he is delegating authority. He's allowing things to happen. And what he's allowing to happen is setting up his return for the millennial reign. And that is, that's the whole purpose of this book, is to get to chapter 19, the climax of human history. So it's the book which culminates all things. It's everything we get to look forward to in Jesus. And the whole book is all about redemption. So it's the, also the only book of the Bible that promises a blessing on anyone that reads it. It's chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. So it's the only book of the Bible that promises a blessing on if you read it or hear it. 
And the reason is because when it's studied correctly, it does take you into the entire rest of the Bible, the whole counsel of God's Word. That's part of the blessing. It also gives you complete confidence in what's coming upon the world and your place in departing before it comes on the world. And so it is comforting. When you study it rightly, the whole book is comforting. It's the only book that gives you a divine outline in chapter 1, verse 19, where Jesus tells John, write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The things which thou hast seen was the unveiling of Jesus in chapter 1. The things which are the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. Those are honestly the most important chapters for us today, our Revelation chapters 2 and 3, because it's the seven letters to the seven churches, and we are the church. And we're in the age of the church of Laodicea, that last letter of the seven. And the things which are hereafter, hereafter means after the church age closes. So chapter 4, verse 1, the rapture, and then everything after that. So it's also the only book of the Bible that details explicitly the future and declares itself to be prophecy. It's in Revelation 1, chapter 3, the words of this prophecy. And the spirit of Jesus, according to chapter 19, the spirit of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So it's important. So there's a supernatural outline we talked about. Four things will be corrected in this book. The church will be back in, its, in our rightful home, which is heaven. Israel back in its rightful home, the land God promised them all the way back to Genesis. Jesus will be on his rightful throne, the throne of David. That's the, what the angel Gabriel promised to Mary before Jesus was ever born. He has not fulfilled that. And the angel told Mary, your son will sit on the throne of David. That's a political ruling throne from Jerusalem. That hasn't happened yet, but it will. We're going to see that in this book as we continue to go along. All evil will be bound and ultimately cast into their rightful home, the lake of fire. So you've got all these things going back to where they belong. We've been working through from chapter 6 on these three sets of seven judgments on a Christ-rejecting world. The first, chapter 6, was the first six seals. And the way the Lord structured this in the Jewish culture, you would call it a heptatic structure. Heptatic is just a fancy word for seven. And so you'd have seven seals, but between the sixth and the seventh, there's a break in every one of these. And the seventh opens up the next seven. So the architecture of the book is very deliberate. It's very intentional. It's, it's Holy Spirit-inspired. And chapter 7 was the break between the 6th and the 7th seal. The 7th seal opened up the 7 trumpets. We went through 6 of those, and now we're in this parenthetical break between the 6th and the 7th trumpet, which lasts for 5 chapters, chapters 10 through 14. So today we're taking the first part of chapter 13, and then after that, the 7th trumpet will open up the 7 bulls, and then Jesus comes back in Revelation 19 and on. So we're still in this kind of parenthetical break between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, these five chapters. Chapter 10 was the little book in the seven thunders. We studied that. Chapter 11 was the temple and the two witnesses. We broke that down. Chapter 12 is the woman, man, child, and the dragon. It's an overview of the entire Bible, the woman being Israel, the man, child, obviously Jesus Christ, and the dragon, Satan, ready to consume him. And we went through a, a pretty deep study on the entire chess match between God and Satan from the scarlet thread that starts in Genesis 3.15 all the way until Revelation 22, the climax of all things. Chapter 13 is what we're taking today, the first part, which is the two beasts. And then anyone that 
knows absolutely nothing about the Bible knows about 666 and the mark of the beast. If you ask anyone in the world about 666, they have an opinion on that number. And it's amazing. It's at the very end of chapter 13. We're not going to get to it today. We're going to get to it next week and really unpack that. But it's incredible how the world has an opinion on this mark of the Antichrist. And what does it mean? Are we taking it now? Is it a barcode? I remember back in the 90s when barcodes started becoming big. People thought it was the barcodes, and they thought it was a, a credit card, and then they thought, and I, I'm here to tell you, it's not on the world yet. Okay, so don't worry about that. You will not see it if you are in Jesus. Praise God. But there are some things going on in the world right now that are setting the stage for it to come on the world. And that's what we as the church need to be cognizant of. Chapter 13 is the Lamb and the 144,000 that were sealed all the way back earlier in Revelation. And that'll be really, really interesting. It also details the doom of anyone who takes that mark and pledges their allegiance to the Antichrist. So, like I said, even people that know absolutely nothing about the Bible have an opinion of Revelation 13. It, it's incredible. Uh, in 2020, people thought the four horsemen were being released from chapter 6. They thought the mark of the beast was coming on the world. They, you know, you have this ingrained spirit of fear over the world waiting and anticipating these things, but it hasn't happened yet. And we know it hasn't happened yet because we're still here. And we, we broke that down a lot in chapter 4, verse 1. But we're going to take it in two parts because this is a really important chapter to understand God's divine plan for us, who he will give limited authority to, and what our role is as the church in these events that are yet to happen. So when you really look at it, chapters 12 and 13, they kind of go together as one succinct package. And we mentioned this all the way back at the beginning of the study but you cannot count the number of sevens in the book of Revelation. You could sit down and try to make a list, and you would never get them all. It's inexhaustible. And when you look at chapters 12 and 13 together, there's even seven notable figures between these two chapters. When you look at them as, as kind of a package, there is the woman, Israel from Genesis 37, the man-child, Jesus himself, the red dragon, Satan from Revelation 12.9, he's defined as that. Michael, one of the chief princes of Israel, all the way back from Daniel 10, 13. Then you have the remnant of Israel who flee to the wilderness. And then today, the beast out of the sea, we're going to take him. And then next week, we'll take the beast out of the earth, the two final world leaders in this antichrist and false prophet duo that's to come upon the world. So here in Revelation 13, we're, we're studying the rise of the prophecy all the way back in Genesis 3:15. And Genesis 3.15 is the plot line that sets up the entire Bible, the seed war. And God says, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Notice the personal pronouns used. Okay, the seed of the woman is the first title of Jesus Christ in the Bible. And it, it implies a virgin birth all the way back in Genesis 3. And then last week we studied why a, a virgin birth was necessary due to Jeremiah, the curse on the bloodline on David's line, the rise of the, the exception from Numbers 27 and the daughters of Zelophehad, and how all of that ties into the lineage of Jesus through the house of David in the book of Matthew when you get to it. It's pretty amazing. But the seed of the woman. So notice that 
the serpent will bruise his heel and he will, literally the word means crush. He will crush his head. And that obviously hasn't happened yet. Satan is having quite a field day with the world these days. And as I mentioned when we were praying over the kids, believers are literally fleeing for their lives in Afghanistan and all over the world. And we need, please, continue to pray for those people in your prayer time. Get in your prayer closet. Go lift them up to the Lord and pray Psalm 91. Pray that they would find a covering under his wing, that the earth literally would open up and swallow their enemies right now because their kids are being slaughtered. If they have a Western phone number in their phone, they're being murdered. But all of that is the working of Satan and his future minions to come upon the world. The seed of the serpent is really who we're starting to study here in chapter 13. So the Messiah will crush Satan's head while Satan simply bruises his heel. And this is, as I mentioned, it is the seed plot for the entire Bible. And from this point on, you see Satan trying desperately to stop the arrival of the seed of the woman. His attack on Abraham's line, then God hones in and says, well, it really come through the house of David, then his attack on David's line, all the way up to Herod trying to kill all the babies two years old and younger in the New Testament. It's all because of this right here. But look, I want you to notice as we dive into this, who's declaring war? It's not Satan, it's God. And God is declaring war on his enemy. Can you imagine knowingly taking up arms and going to war against the one that created you? I just cannot think of anything dumber, frankly, than that. But Satan is doing it, and he thinks he has a way to win. And we've talked about that before. It's Hosea 5.15 right now. That's what he thinks he can stop. But he is, God is declaring war, and he is set forward to conquer him through this whole saga now that's lasted almost 6,000 years. But here in chapter 13, the seed of the serpent is really what's rising here, out of the sea and out of the earth. So to open up in Revelation 13, verse 1, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Most people read that and just go, well, that's super confusing. I'm just going to stop right here and uh, hopefully figure it out sometime later. But these seven heads and ten horns, this is all over, all over the Bible. The opening eye here is kind of a, it's a little bit of a mistranslation. It really means he, and it probably refers back to the dragon from chapter 12 is the he. So he is standing upon the sand of the shore watching his two guys rise up. Uh, remember John sees everything. He's taken and he sees this and he sees that. He's not actually standing in the midst of it. So just as a point of clarification. So we're going to see two beasts rise in chapter 13. One is the coming world leader and the church ever since I was a kid in the 90s has done a vast disservice of naming this guy the Antichrist. And the name is stuck. Uh, nowhere in the Bible is that name used of him. He's got 32 titles in the Old Testament and 12 in the New Testament, and none of them are Antichrist. But it's, you can't get away from that name. Everybody knows that name, so we're just going to call him the Antichrist for lack of, uh, for clarity and to minimize confusion, hopefully. So the other person that rises up is the false prophet, and he, the false prophet's detailed three times in the book of Revelation that title is used. So he's who causes the world to worship the Antichrist, 
So you have, just keep in mind as we go through this, there are two players. There's the final world leader, and then there's the false prophet who causes the world to worship that final world leader. Okay, the beast out of the sea is likely a Gentile, and we get this from several verses. I'll just read a couple of them. Isaiah 57, 20, but the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. So you have a connection there in Isaiah 57 of the wicked being like the troubled sea where it cannot rest. Isaiah 10, 24, therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, O my people that dwelleth in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian. This is one of the 32 titles in the Old Testament of the Antichrist. He's called in Isaiah and Micah 5, the Assyrian, which has kind of a Gentile ring to it. Assyria is modern-day Iraq and Syria. That land combined would be ancient Assyria. The Bible always uses the ancient names for the lands that, because we change names with them all the time. And we'll talk about that next week in, this, in Satan's seven super kingdoms from Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and the Roman two phases. So we'll look at that next week. But the Assyrian, okay, go down to Isaiah 14, 25, that I will break the Assyrian in my land and upon my mountains tread him underfoot. So there's back to Genesis 3, 15, he will crush his head. Jesus is literally going to tread him underfoot. And when you read Zechariah, Jesus comes back, he stands on the Mount of Olives when he returns in Revelation 19, and it cleaves, it splits to the north and the south creating a, a way for a stream of life to come out of the millennial temple, which is amazing because it goes off to the east. In Micah 5, And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land and when he shall tread in our palaces. Then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men, which is really interesting. And they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod in the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrians. So God will deliver his people Israel from the Antichrist. And, we, and that promise is all over the Bible. We looked at, I don't know, maybe 20 of them two weeks ago when we met before the baptism service. But in Revelation 17, 15, And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest where the whore sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So these waters have a general feel throughout the Bible of being the Gentile nations. And because his title is the Assyrian, it leads many to believe the Antichrist will be of Gentile in nature, while the false prophet is of Jewish background. Again, because Jesus said, another will come in my name and he you will receive. And that another is alos in the Greek, which means another of the same kind, meaning a Jewish rabbinical descent. So, the false prophet likely is a Jew, which is why he's received by Israel. The word beast here is therion, and it really means a ferocious beast. It doesn't mean a living creature. So back in chapters 4 and 5, in the throne room of the universe, we had four living creatures surrounding the throne room of God. And we studied how they had four faces, and those four faces link to the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We studied how they laid out the cross in Numbers chapter 2 with the census of the 12 tribes of Israel that they rallied around those four faces, the man, the eagle, the lion, and the ox. And they lay out a cross when they would camp around the tabernacle of, Jesus, of uh, the Levites, I should say. 
But the word beast here is therion, so it's different than beast as in a living creature from chapter 4 and 5. So this beast, it means a ferocious beast. It's different from chapters 4 and 5. It's the same beast that Daniel sees back in Daniel chapter 7. And this phrase for seven heads and ten horns, it's used throughout Daniel and Revelation. So we're going to look at those and what those mean. But this is a ferocious beast rising out of the sea that John has seen. So the seven heads and ten horns, this is where one of those places that, again, if you don't study the Old Testament, you're totally confused on what's going on here. And Daniel sees the exact same thing in Daniel 7, and it's linked to what John has seen here in Revelation 13. So if you remember from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a statue made of gold, and there's gold, silver, brass, iron, and then iron mixed with clay. And those represented Satan's kingdoms from Babylon all the way down to the final Antichrist kingdom. And all of that is, is declared to you and interpreted for you in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel sees the same kingdoms in chapter 7, but he sees them as ferocious beasts. He doesn't see them as glorious metals the way Nebuchadnezzar saw them. See, Nebuchadnezzar saw the ruling Gentile kingdoms as valuable metals, whereas God sees them as ferocious beasts that are tyrannical and overbearing and persecuting his people. And he sees them because the commonality between Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and then the final Antichrist kingdom is all five of those kingdoms persecuted Israel when it's in the land. That's why God sees those, why he lays out those kingdoms. So in Revelation chapter 12, verse 3, there appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. So we saw the same idiom two weeks ago, of these seven heads, ten crowns, but yet seven crowns. Okay, Revelation 17, when you go forward in the, in the chapter, in the book, so he carried me away into the spirit, into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. So there's that image of that beast again. In verse 7, And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. So you have these seven heads and ten horns kind of all throughout the Bible. In Revelation 17, 9, And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Okay, so the seven heads are literally seven kingdoms. Think of it that way. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. So what you're seeing in chapter 17 is the world system is, is a mystery Babylon. It's this lady that's sitting on the beast. She's taking advantage of the beast system that we're seeing rise up here in chapter 13. And this beast having seven heads and ten horns. So go back to Daniel 7, and Daniel sees the same thing. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that was before, and it had ten horns. So just keep this 
I know these are a lot of verses, but just keep in mind these seven heads, these ten horns. And of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom thee fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things. So this is the Antichrist coming out of those. And we always see him speaking great, marvelous blasphemies against God. He's doing that all throughout the Bible. And a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. I love that, how God just puts his little things in there. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. And another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. Okay, so go to the next slide, Austin, real quick. I think, okay, here's the picture. So hopefully this explains it. In Daniel chapter 2, he sees the metal statue, the gold, silver, brass, and iron, and iron mixed with clay. That's what Nebuchadnezzar sees. Daniel interprets it as the gold being Babylon, the silver being Persia, the brass being Greece, the iron being Rome, and then the final Antichrist kingdom, Rome in two phases, the iron mixed with clay. Now, it's important because the statue has ten toes. Okay, those are the ten kings that rise up to formulate this final world empire. Those kings, as we just read in two verses, have no kingdom as of yet, meaning you can't find them anywhere. We talked about this back early in Revelation, but when you look at the world today and what really happened in 2020, think about how people that have absolutely no political office are setting guidelines and boundaries on the rest of the world. You know, think about the ancient term would be an oligarch. That would be an ancient term. These, these multi-billionaires that control everything, right? The news, social media, everything. They control it. You could see where the world could get to a place where 10 of them are really running everything. And it's just a speculation, but you could see that form. So you have Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and Rome in two phases. Now, Daniel sees the same thing, but he sees them as God sees them, as ferocious beasts. So when you get to Daniel 7, he sees them as a winged lion, a bear on side, a leopard, and then the final kingdom, a terrible beast, and then a terrible beast with ten heads. So these ten heads represent the same thing, these ten toes, the same idiom there. So you have gold, silver, brass. Notice that the metals actually go down in decreasing in value. They also, just for all of you other engineering math nerds in the room, they, <laughs> thank you, J.E., just me, yeah, appreciate that. They also, uh, these metals get further and further away from the specific gravity of water. So they get further and further away from, what did Jesus say? I am the living water. And so they get further and further away from worshiping him. The only testimony written in the Bible by a Gentile is Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. He writes his testimony to the world for what God took him through after this image because then he sets up an image of gold and then he makes everyone bow down and worship it. Those that don't get thrust into the fiery furnace. All of it's a model of what the Antichrist will do where the false prophet causes the world to worship him and those that don't get executed, it's the same thing. But Nebuchadnezzar comes to know the Lord through that, and he gets a reprobate mind for seven years and gets cast into a field where he eats grass and he grows wings and feathers. If you remember that from Daniel, that's why he's a winged lion, as Daniel sees it in chapter 7. But pretty interesting, they get further and further away from Jesus. 
from the specific gravity of water as you go down in these kingdoms. But these, the Daniel chapter 7, the lion was Babylon. There on a side, the Persian Empire was known for conquering the world and doing it very ferociously. And, they, and a bear moves very slowly, and that's how Persia did it. When Greece rises to power, the leopard with wings, four wings, conquers swiftly, and it goes across the land. Alexander the Great conquered the world in something less than four years. He conquered the entire known earth, then the terrible beast, and then the ten heads. So that's a pretty good picture of what you're seeing between Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. Now notice that the beasts that are in Revelation 13 here in verse 2 are going to be in the reverse order as Daniel saw them. So in, in verse 2, And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. So, see, when Daniel saw them, he saw a lion, bear, a leopard, and a terrible beast. Here, it's the reverse order. It's leopard, bear, and then a lion. So Daniel was looking forward in time. John is looking backward in time because those kingdoms have risen and fallen already. So he's looking backward. That's why they're in a reverse order here. So the lion communicates very arrogantly. The bear conquers completely and extensively, while the leopard expands very quickly. And those actually characterize those three kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, and Greece, because Nebuchadnezzar was very arrogant, which is why he had a lesson in pride. I'm looking forward to actually meeting Nebuchadnezzar in heaven, because in Hebrews, God does not correct you or chasten you unless you're in him. And, if, and praise God if he does, because then you're a legitimate son. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he got a correction in pride. And so I'm looking forward to meeting him. And then, like I said, Daniel 4 is his testimony to the whole known world. The only Gentile to write a, write a letter in the Bible. Okay, verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as it were, so of the beast. I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. So, Real quick, I forgot to mention this. The seven heads and the ten crowns. The seven heads are these seven Satan's seven super kingdoms from Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and then Rome in two phases. Those are the seven. The ten crowns are the ten kings or oligarchs, whoever they turn out to be, that rise to power to form the foundation of the Antichrist kingdom. The Antichrist rises up out of them puts three of them down, which is why then there are only seven crowns, and then all the rest of the seven give their authority to him, and they submit to him, and he then rules the world through that. And Daniel 8.25, by peace he will destroy many. So by peace he actually rises to power. But here's a characteristic of this guy. He has a head wound. He's wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. See, everything that Satan does is a counterfeit, everything. And so this is the false death and resurrection of the false Messiah. That's what you're seeing here. And this is the first of three times in this chapter that the head wound is mentioned. It's going to be a critical moment in the world in that time when this guy receives some kind of head wound and rises back from the dead. Now, is it a true resurrection or is it a false resurrection? That's yet to be determined but it's chronicled in Zechariah 11:17, where God says, Woe to the idle shepherd that leaveth the flock, 
So he turns his back on Israel, and we know that from many, many passages, especially Daniel 9. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. This is the only physical description in the Bible of the Antichrist. So some, in some battle, he, create, he suffers a wound that causes his eye to be darkened, meaning he can't see out of it anymore, and his arm to be clean dried up or severed. You can think of it that way. But all the world will worship him from this point because he rises again through a false resurrection. Now, you could argue, was he really dead? Was he not dead? Satan comes with all lying signs and wonders. We know that. So I don't know that if he's really going to raise him from the dead or if he's just going to deceive the world with a lying sign and wonder that he is raised from the dead. That's yet to be determined. But notice it's the idol shepherd, I-D-O-L, not idol, I-D-L-E. He's the idol, the idol of the world. The world is looking for someone to worship and usher in the kingdom without the king. And that's why the world will be so quick to, get, to submit to this guy, because as the world burgeons with unrest, think about the wildfires going on in California right now. The Middle East is in total turmoil. Christians are on the run. Earthquakes are happening all over the world. And we're, we're not even in it yet. There's famines through northern Africa and eastern Asia. Just everything that's going on in the world, this guy is going to show up with a solution to everything, which is why the world will be so quick to submit to him and pledge authority to him. But he somehow, he's associated with the Jewish people because he affirms a covenant with Israel, but he leaves the flock. Now, he... He will cause the world to take the mark in the forehead or the hand. And what I find interesting when you go all the way back to Exodus, the Passover was commemorated by God with a mark in the forehead or the hand. See, again, it's a false mark. So you see in Ezekiel 2, Jesus comes forward with the inkhorn and he marks a cross on all of those that are for him. It's the same thing. It's the enemy trying to counterfeit that mark of allegiance to him. So, moving on to verse 4, and they worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. So, again, look at where the beast is getting his power. It's from the dragon, the dragon being Satan. We know where Satan gets his power. It's from Jesus, from Job chapter 1. He sets the boundary lines. He always sets the lines. The Lord does. So, anything that Satan is doing, God has to set the boundary. And so God is allowing this to happen for his glory because it's all about redemption. And then the dragon is submitting some of that authority to the Antichrist. So look at how the people will praise him so much. Look at the end of this. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Okay, so the whole world is worshiping this guy, thinking he is a little G God. And who is able to make war with him? Well, that answer is coming soon. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus is going to draw a sword with the word of his mouth. And by the word of his power in Revelation 19, this right here, he is going to wipe out every enemy that surrounds Jerusalem. And we get to come back with him in Revelation 19. If you are with him, from Colossians 3, 4, from lots of passages in the New Testament, we will be with him when he returns on our white horse behind him. But it's the rider on the true white horse. 
and he is the one that's able to make war. And I just love the, the arrogance of the world in this passage. Who is able to make war with this guy? It's because they don't know the king that created that guy to begin with. And so they, they think they have it all figured out. But it's amazing that, again, the world's clamoring for a war with the one they don't really want to make war with because Jesus, he came to die once. He came to die once and for all. And when he comes back, it's to rule and to reign. So in verse 5, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. So like I said, he's always running his mouth. In Daniel 7, 8, I considered the horns and beheld there came up among them another little horn before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up. I mentioned this, the ten kings. He rises up, takes three of them down by the roots and beheld in his horn were eyes like the eyes of a man. And here it is, a mouth speaking great things. And the king shall do, so Daniel 11, the king shall do according to his will, that's one of his titles, the willful king in the Old Testament. And he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things. There it is again. Psalms 52, thou lovest all devouring words. This is speaking of the Antichrist who loves all devouring words from Psalms 52. O thou deceitful tongue, God shall likewise destroy thee forever. He shall take thee away and pluck thee out of thy dwelling place and root thee out of the land of the living. So 2 Thessalonians 2.4, speaking of him, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. See, he's going to raise himself up to be above every God that's worshipped today. That includes Allah, that includes Buddha, that includes every other religion on earth, that includes our true God, Jesus himself. So, and here it is again, this, this 40 and two months. This is the most documented period of time in the entire Bible, 40 and two months. This final seven-year period, there is no other period of, of history in all of human history that is documented more in the Bible than this final seven-year period, the tribulation. From the midpoint on, it's the great tribulation, as Jesus defines in Matthew 24. But you see it as 42 months, 1260 days, time, times, and the dividing of time. And all of that's in Daniel and Revelation all throughout the Bible. And again, just keep in mind as you study prophecy more, God's calendar is always 360 days, not 365 and a quarter days. That's, that's what we had to do after the long day of Joshua to keep up with calendar alignments. But God's calendar is the same. It's 360 day years. So in verse 6, and he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God. There he is again, running his mouth against the king to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. It's amazing that this guy is going to blaspheme three things. God, his tabernacle, which is really in heaven. Remember when he gives Moses the blueprints of the tabernacle, he tells them in Hebrews, we learn, make it as a blueprint of the heavenly reality. So the real tabernacle, the real Ark of the Covenant, the real mercy seat, all of that is in heaven. And so, and the sky is blaspheming it, and a group that dwells in heaven. Now, that's pretty amazing because he's going to have something against the people that were here that are no longer here. And that's you if you're in Jesus. You are going to be blasphemed by the Antichrist if you are in the Lord right now because you are going to go home in the rapture, and when you go home, 
I want you to think about this for a minute. What are you leaving behind? Are you leaving behind a stack of Bibles in your house? Are you leaving behind a way to get to know Jesus in your house? Because I promise you, people are going to come in there looking for refuge and shelter and resources and water and something. And when they come in my front door, they're going to see a lot of Bibles with notes written in them on how to get to know the King. Because there's going to be a deception that comes upon the world that, as Jesus said, will be so great it would deceive the very elect. And then there's the key word, if it were possible. And it, praise God, it's not possible for you who are in Jesus right now to be deceived by what's coming upon the world. And he is going to hate it. Everything in the world is going to change in that moment. The moment of the rapture, everything's going to change. The Holy Spirit indwells each of us in this room. Seven times in the New Testament, you are the temple of God right now. And the restraining Holy Spirit, when it's removed out of the way, you cannot imagine the hell that is going to break out on earth when the Holy Spirit's removed. Can you imagine one second after the rapture, there will not be a single believer on planet earth? Just to think about that. You think the world's bad now with a bunch of Christians walking around. Imagine when they're all gone. And there's nobody to pray for their kids. There's nobody to pray over the schools. There's nobody to stand in the gap and pray for believers in Afghanistan who are being slaughtered right now. All of that goes away. And God is starting over. And there's going to be in droves, probably billions of people come to know him during this time. But man, it's going to be a hard way to go about it. So just think about what you're leaving behind. Verse 7, And it was given unto him to make war with the saints. Now this is important. And to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Notice that, the, that power is given this guy to over the whole world. All kindreds and tongues and nations. This is not a localized issue. This is not an Israeli issue. This is not confined to New York City or Los Angeles or Paris. This is a global issue. Now, power to overcome them. The word in the Greek is nikeo, and it literally means to overcome, to overthrow, to prevail against. Now, when you get to Daniel 7, speaking of the Antichrist, I beheld in the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Now, when you put those two verses together, it should trouble you when you get to Matthew 16 and what Jesus said. Because Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 18, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, he's pointing to himself here, he's not pointing to Peter. Jesus is pointing to himself, upon this rock. He is the rock all throughout the scripture. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now that's... That's an interesting statement by the Lord because he's saying, my church will not be prevailed over by the Antichrist. But yet here in Revelation 13, he's going to overcome the saints. And in Daniel 7, it's confirmed he overcomes the saints. So what it brings in mind is what we've talked about a lot in here. There are different groups of people in God's program. You have, remember what Jesus said to John the Baptist? The law and the prophets were until John. The law and the prophets were until John. Malachi does not close the Old Testament. John the Baptist does. And what he says then, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Actually, he says, any man that's born of a woman, none is greater than John. He's the greatest ever born of any woman. But he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So what is he saying? He's saying somehow the saints in the Old Testament, there's a group that is greater in the kingdom of heaven 
than John the Baptist and the Old Testament saints. He's speaking of the church. And what he's speaking of is the relationship that we have with the Lord where the Holy Spirit indwells us. So in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and go. It would come, it would come down. David prayed for God not to take his spirit from him. It's because the Holy Spirit came and went. They had a different relationship with the Lord. And of all of them, John the Baptist was the greatest. But Jesus says, he that's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So he's speaking of the church, the body of Christ, the ecclesia, this mystical body that we live in right now in the church age that we know now to have lasted almost 2,000 years, not quite, but just about. And there's going to come a time from Romans 11, 25, that when the fullness of the church is complete, then he goes and gets us and blindness comes off of Israel. And we know there's going to be what I like to paraphrase as tribulation saints. There are saints that come to know the Lord in droves in the, this time period. They have, different, they have a different mission. They serve God day and night in the temple with palm branches and white clothing. We, in Revelation 4 and 5, as the church, the 24 elders are sitting on thrones ruling and reigning with Jesus. So you have to rightly divide the word of truth from 2 Timothy. So just keep this in mind. When you see this passage, the saints, and to overcome them, it's not speaking of us. He's not going to overcome us because Matthew 16, Jesus promised that. Can you go to the next verse, Austin, or slide, Austin? Verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life. So we're just about finished here, but this is important whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The only way you end up worshiping this final world leader is to completely and forever reject Jesus, the true Messiah. We know that. It's to pledge allegiance against God and to this guy. Everyone that's ever been created has had their name written in the book of life. Now notice, from God's perspective, the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So from God's perspective, Jesus' Jesus's sacrifice for everyone happened before the world was even created, which is why your name could be written there, which is why everyone that lived before Jesus, their name could be written there in the lamb's book of life. Now, the Holy Spirit gave me this a few years back, and I just want to share it with all of you in here because it's important. If you understand this concept, how you live for Jesus day in and day out will radically change. Okay, everyone's name that's ever been created on planet Earth, their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So for whom did Jesus die? Hebrews 2.9. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for a select few individuals. No, that's not what it says. <laughs> for every man. For every man. Are you sure he died for everyone? 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, that's Jesus, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So again, he died for all. Who does God love? The most famous verse in the entire Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The world. That whosoever, if you've come to know Jesus, you're a whosoever. And there are a lot of whosoevers that don't know Jesus right now. I've got a lot in my family 
that don't know Jesus right now. I've got a lot in our extended family that don't know Jesus. I've got a lot of coworkers that don't know the Lord right now. But he loved them. He died for them. For whom is God's will? Second Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness. But is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So again, God's will is that nobody should perish. Okay, so because of that, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and this is confirmed all over the Bible, and I love this, this concept. Okay, with all that in mind, in order to be blotted out of the Book of Life, you had to have been written there. So think about what the Lord says here in Psalm 69, 28. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. So in order to blot something out, your name has to be written there. You can't blot it out if your name wasn't written there. I have, I have lots of, like I said, lots of people I've known that have totally rejected Jesus. Their name is in the Lamb's Book of Life until their final breath and they've rejected him completely. God has to then blot them out. They didn't accept the gift. They did not accept the way that I paved for them to have fellowship with me for all eternity. And I did everything I could to get to them. I sent missionaries. I sent people with scripture. I sent people that prayed for them. I did miracles in their life. I kept breath in their lungs. I kept their heart beating. I made their brain function. All of those things that God does that you take for granted, he did for them. And yet there's still people that deny him, so they have to be blotted out. Exodus 32, yet now if thou wilt forgive their sin, look what Moses asked the Lord, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of the book which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. So again, they were written there, but he has to blot them out. And then Revelation 3, 5, look at Jesus' promise to us that are in him. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will, what? Not blot out his name. So if you're in Jesus, it's the only way you cannot get your name blotted out of the Lamb's Book of Life. That's why at the very end in Revelation 22, the books were opened. And anyone's name not found there is cast into the lake of fire. They cannot have fellowship with an almighty, righteous, holy God because they did not accept the one thing that was the remedy for their sin. All they had to do was accept what God appropriated to take care of their sin problem. That was it. But here in Revelation 13, the people that worship the beast have their names not written in the Lamb's Book of Life because they are forever barred from being saved. They have rejected the Lord, so he has to blot them out. Look at Psalms 139. My substance was not hid from thee, when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. How many of you knew you were formed in the center of the earth? That's pretty cool. We'll talk about that sometime. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. So you were written in the book before you were ever even born, before there was any of them formed, you were in the book. Your name is in the book of life while you are still unperfect, i.e. not saved, and before you were ever born. Then look at 2 Thessalonians 2.10. You can't reject something if you're not giving the chance to receive it. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they received not the love of the truth. 
that they might be saved. So the ones that reject the Lord, they didn't receive it, which means it was offered and they rejected it. And make no mistake about it, Romans 1, even the creation alone is enough to hold man accountable. When you look at the magnificence of the stars, if you look at the magnificence of the earth, of what God created, the physical properties of it, how it is so finely tuned for life to exist here, for man to live here. You know, the scientists have searched for thousands and thousands of years for life elsewhere, right, in the solar system, out in the galaxies, and they haven't found it. And it's, it's ironic because it's God way, God's way of saying, well, because it wasn't an accident. Because I finally tuned the earth to inhabit man. If the earth was any closer to the sun, you wouldn't have a water cycle. If it was any further from the sun, it wouldn't have a water cycle. You think about everything that is so finely tuned, the ozone layer. You know, scientists know, well, if it just re- decreases 0.000001 inch, we're all going to fry to death. Well, that's a really tight margin. Who put that in place? You know, it's a sign of the creator. And the, the creation alone is enough to hold man accountable. It's all in Romans 1. So Revelation 13, 9, we'll close with the last two verses here and pick up the rest next week. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. So here's that phrase, if any man have an ear, let him hear. That's different than Revelation 2 and 3 where Jesus says seven times, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So the church is gone, so it's not to the church anymore. It's another subtle hint to know that we're not here. It's to any man. And finally, those that subvert, enslave, kill, and try to take the world captive will get what they are owed. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. You know, I have, I, I have watched a lot of things go on the last few years around the world, and you get this sense of a righteous indignation of, Jesus, how much longer are you going to wait? And he just keeps saying over and over, just be patient. There's more to come to me. There's more to get saved. There's more to come into the ark before it's too late. And so that needs to be what we're about right now. So... If you're in Jesus, you need to get in his word. Uh, build your faith. You know, you could spend your, I spent my whole life in church and had no idea what faith was. All through college, going to church, Bible studies, nobody ever defined faith for me until I found out that it was defined in the Bible. Hebrews 11.1, 1. faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So the substance of things hoped for is Jesus, and he is the evidence of things not seen. Why is it important to have faith? Well, Hebrews eleven six. 6, for without faith, it's impossible to please him. So you can't please him unless you have faith. It's not that it's difficult. It's not that it's hard. It's impossible, God's word says. So if it's impossible to please him without it, you need to know how to go get it. In Romans ten seventeen, as faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The only way if you are in Jesus to build your faith is to get into God's word. That's the only way. There's no evidence in what you see. There's no faith in it. The children of Israel out of Egypt saw more miracles than any other generation to walk the earth, and yet they had zero faith when they got into the wilderness. They fashioned a golden calf less than, what, three days later or something? They had no faith because they didn't rely on God's word. They were relying on what they saw. And if you were in him, the creator of the universe, he has sustained this for almost 6,000 years for you and I in this room. 
And 77% of the Bible is the Old Testament by word count. And I'm telling you, if you are not in it daily, you are susceptible to the enemy. You are walking out unguarded. You are walking out without your only offensive weapon, according to Ephesians 6, which is the sword of the Spirit. And it will build a relationship with the creator of the universe that you never knew was possible. I promise you. Whatever you're going through in your life, even if you are somewhere in the Bible that's not even applicable to what you're going through, you will get an answer for it. I am telling you. And if you will pray 1 John 2.27, that the anointing of the Holy Spirit teaches you all things that you need no man to teach you, he will answer every question that you have. And all you have to do is what I did the first time I started reading through this cover to cover 10 years ago, I got a journal and I wrote down every single question I had. And I took it to the Lord and I prayed 1 John 2.27 before I read and after I read. And every question he answered within about 72 hours in some way some miraculous way. He is so desperate to sit with his people and to empower you to walk in a world that is absolutely against you and what we believe. And I am telling you, if you are not in the word of God, you are going to go astray. You are going to go out into the wilderness. You're going to be killed by the enemy and taken out of the ball game. Like Ryan said, you won't lose your salvation, but you will be unproductive for God. And the only way you can get productive and to know what is his calling on your life is to be in the word of God. And so if you're watching this online, if you're here in this room, if you don't know the Lord, it's simple. If you want to make sure your name stays in the book of life, it's very simple. It's Romans 10:9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you're saved. You shall be saved. You don't have to add anything to it. You don't have to try to then get baptized. You don't have to do good works. You don't have to make sure you give to the poor. All of that is a bearing of the fruit of the Spirit and doing work for the kingdom, but it has nothing to do with your salvation that is once and for all that Jesus died and paid for to make sure your name stays in the book of life. In Isaiah 118, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. That's what he does. I added up Ryan's slide up there. He had 217 accounts. I added them quick. Every one of them is white as snow. All 217. Anything you've done in your life can be white as snow. Anything. And in the book of Amos, God says, how can two walk together unless they are in agreement? You can't walk with the Lord. You can't reason with him and walk with him unless you are in agreement. How do you get in agreement with God? You get into his word. And you realize, okay, the Lord doesn't want me to do that. I'm telling you, when you're in his, in his word, you will have things shed and taken off of your life that you didn't even know you need to get rid of. He will refine you and he will bring you out of it as something that you never thought was possible to serve him in that way. So with that, I'll close us in prayer. If you guys need anything, I think our email address may be on the next slide. Uh, come see one of us after church, me, Mason, anybody. We'll pray with you guys. If you've got a prayer request, come see us. We pray. Randy and I pray for you guys a lot. And I just want you to know that we do not take it lightly, that we get the esteemed privilege to stand up here and unpack God's word with you week in and week out. And until he returns, we're going to keep doing this. <laughs> and even if there's people out there to take us off somewhere, we're going to keep doing this. And 
it's, it, we cannot forsake the gathering of ourselves together, Hebrews 10.25. So we're going to be here, and we're going to teach the word. So if you've got prayer requests or anything, there's our email address. Reach out to us. And with that, I'll, I'll close us in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. God, we thank you for the depth of Revelation 13 and what we're diving into. And God, we thank you that despite the entire world setting in place a system that is adamantly against you and your, and your Christ, your Messiah, and the King that we serve, Lord, we know that you are in complete control. And as long as you tarry, Father, we're going to see more and more stage setting until we hear from 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17, the sound of that trumpet, and we get to forever be with you, just as you promised Jesus in John 14. So God, I just thank you so much for all the families here. Be with us in the week ahead. Again, we are praying for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan that are on the run, that are being hunted and killed just for having a Western phone number in their phone for having a Bible on their phone, for having a Bible in their possession. They are being murdered. And Lord, vengeance is mine, declares the, God, declares the Lord. And Lord, we know that your vengeance does not sleep forever. And there will come a day that they have a reckoning. And until then, we are praying Psalm 91, a shadow, a hedge of protection around those people, that they would find safe refuge in you. Lord, supernaturally provide for them in the wilderness, open the earth and swallow their enemies and be a light unto them, meet them. And God, again, we are praying for our children that God, you would equip them with your word on the frontlets and on their, on their mind and the depth of their heart, that they would serve you and have a testimony for you in the schools as they start this school year. That they would not be shaken by people trying to lead them astray, by people trying to indoctrinate them with false truth, Jesus, you are the truth, and they are leaning on you, and we just pray a special hedge around their minds. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, and we thank you for that. God, be with us in the weeks ahead. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen.